0: This episode of Cheat Codes, a sickle cell podcast, is intended for informational and educational purposes only. This episode of Cheat Codes was supported by Agios. Doctors Amar Zadie and Mike Callahan are employees of Agios Pharmaceuticals. What's up, warriors? This is Keith Korneluk, and I'm the producer for Cheat Codes. Now, you're going to hear Dr. Z and Dr. C in just a minute, so you might be wondering, why am I hearing from you again? Well, this season, we've spotlighted some of the legends of sickle cell. We've talked to Dr. Mike DeBond, Dr. Russell Ware, and more. But today, we're turning the microphones around on your favorite hosts, Dr. Amar Zaidi and Dr. Mike Callahan. Now, they would never call themselves legends, but to many of you, they are. So you're going to hear Amar interview Mike and Mike interview Amar. It's a great conversation and an important one. Let's go. Dr. Mike, how are
1: you? I'm doing good, Dr. Z. How are you doing? Good, man. I've been keeping busy. I know
2: you have too. For sure. It's been a busy morning already.
1: It's been a busy few months. A lot has changed in the last year and a half. A lot has changed since we first started Cheat Codes.
2: Absolutely. Especially for us, but I think for sickle cell too.
1: There's definitely some things that are constant. Certainly the passion around sickle cell disease, the urgency around sickle cell disease persists and is maybe stronger right now.
2: Absolutely. And I think, you know, we'll probably get into it a little bit, but our new roles give us a different perspective. Yeah. And for me, a a much more global perspective. And it's been amazing. And one thing I was worried about moving into this was we were going to have less interaction with patience, and have a limited role in advocacy, but I don't think that's been true.
1: No, I feel like it's been amplified a little bit. Absolutely. So, you know, in episode one, you and I had sat down, had introduced the concept of cheat codes, what we plan to accomplish, what we hope to accomplish, and it feels like we're due for an update. I guess so. You don't seem convinced. Hopefully I can convince you.
2: Every time we have an episode, I'm excited about the topic and I'm excited to interview you today, but that's less fun talking about yourself.
1: I think it's necessary to remember where you came from a little bit. It definitely helps you appreciate where you're going. What we're going to do today, Cheat Codes listeners, is we are going to talk about Dr. Mike and myself. I'm going to interview him. He's going to interview me and we're going to try our best not to bore the hell out of you. Let's get to it. All right. So, Dr. Mike, I have known you for quite some time, man, and I have had a lot of my, you know, when I first met you, I was like, this is like some professor type elite academician, but turns out you're just, you're a kid who grew up in Detroit, man. You're just like Detroit to your core and really had kind of an interesting childhood.
2: Yeah. I mean, you know, it's the only one I know, but I think I moved around a lot more than a lot of other people. At the time, it wasn't always fun, but looking back, I think I got to have a lot of different experiences and meet people from all different walks of life, all different parts of the world, and no complaints. I have wonderful parents and family and friends, and I've been really fortunate.
1: The thing that surprised me the most was your story around how long actually your childhood was spent in the core of Detroit. I was born in St.
2: John's Hospital in Detroit and grew up on the west side of Detroit, living with my grandma and some of my uncles and my parents, and it was the mid-70s through the early 80s, which was, I think, a great time to grow up, but also had some challenges and, you know, looking back on it, loved it.
1: It sounds like you had a really rich childhood growing up around all of these global shared experiences, which I think really has, it really shows right? It shows that you've had a really rich lived experience. So you spent some time in Michigan. You spent some time on a court of your dad needing to move for education in like Texas, Illinois, right? Yeah, that's
2: right. So when I was seven, so my parents are very young. My mom's 18 years older than me. My dad's 20 years older than me. And when I was really young, they were in college and my dad got a law degree and a master's in business at University of Detroit, and my mom got her undergrad at the University of Detroit, and we were living in Detroit. And when my dad graduated, he decided that he did not want to become a corporate person and make lots of money with his law degree and his MBA. He wanted to be a teacher. And so he decided that he needed to go get a PhD and become a professor in business. And initially we moved to Texas to College Station, which was really far from home and really quite a culture shock. Don't remember it real well because I was seven, but I do remember going into second grade and them having me point out where Michigan was on the map and they called me a Yankee. And it was definitely a very different culture from the one I had grown up in until that point in Detroit. But we lived there for about a year. And then actually we came back to Detroit for a summer and my dad worked as a truck driver for a lumber yard and he had transferred to the University of Illinois. And so then after that summer, we moved to Illinois where I lived for three or four years. I really loved Illinois. We were in a college campus and we lived in married student housing. So these were mostly graduate students and they were from everywhere in the world. I went to an elementary school for third grade where people spoke 65 different languages. And my neighborhood was a giant apartment complex where you could go outside at any time and find 50 kids and play whatever sport or activity you wanted. And these were mostly nerds. Their parents were all in graduate school programs. I remember 10-year-old kids who were programming computers in 1985 and find a radio tuner and a garbage can, and an electrical engineering PhD would teach me all about it and help me fix it, or a music PhD would teach me how to make an instrument out of bamboo. And there were a lot of opportunities at the university to get involved in programs there, and I really enjoyed it. That's awesome. Made a ton of friends. And then my dad graduated and took his first professor job at Michigan State, which was up in Lansing, Michigan. And so I did my middle school up there before we moved back to Metro Detroit. And I finished out high school in one of the suburbs and made a ton of friends there and got involved in track and field a lot, a little bit of football, a little bit of basketball, and uh, really had very little focus on school. I had some vague notion that I liked science a lot. And so I enrolled in the college that my dad was teaching at, Oakland University and studied chemistry and it took me until like my junior or senior year to figure out that I didn't really like chemistry at all, but I, I, I stuck through it and graduated with a degree in chemistry there in the middle of that. I thought that there were greener pastures an hour away in Ann Arbor. So I transferred there for a little bit and enjoyed it there, but a free college was a big draw. So moved back home and finished up college and then wound up going to medical school in Detroit and had an idea that I liked pediatrics. And early on in my second year of medical school, we had this hematology unit. And Dr. Ingrid Sarniak was my sort of little group leader. And I was so naive. I didn't know hematology and oncology were combined. I didn't know anything about pediatric hematology. And so in talking to her, that kind of opened my eyes. And most people hated that unit. But I thought it was fascinating and i also still had this idea that i wanted to be a scientist and it was clear that hematology mixed really well with a career as a clinician scientist dr sarnaik introduced me to a guy called dr abella who was a transplanter to be my med school mentor and he said you know you should work with this lady Jean lusher who uh was really a legend in bleeding
1: disorders yeah quite a name
2: And she got me involved as a medical student. And I was able to get a little award from ASH and go to the meeting and present my med school research project there. And I fell in love. I I knew that's what I wanted to do. And from there, it was clear I was going to be a pediatric hematologist.
1: It's a damn good thing you uh, decided that.
2: Yeah. You know, it's it's, uh, no regrets. I have enjoyed every minute of it. Initially, I was in coagulation disorders and took care of a lot of people with hemophilia and other bleeding problems. And I loved that. I got really involved in camp and national groups around hemophilia and befriended a lot of people with hemophilia. And I really liked the longitudinal relationships you build in a chronic disease where people from the time they're diagnosed as babies and help families through those stressful times, but then also get to see people be really successful and grow up and go off to school and get married and have lives of their own. And I don't think you get that in a lot of specialties where you have intense and long-term relationships with patients. And I really enjoyed that. And while I was doing that, I was really focused on science. I had spent about five years as a postdoctoral fellow in a lab up at University of Michigan doing basic science research and had started a lab back in Detroit. But I always had an interest in sickle cell, even going back to medical school. And I was working with Dr. Sarniak, who always trying to retire. And she said, we need to bring in a sickle cell director. So I had lots of new friends from Ash Clinical Research Training Institute or that I met at different meetings. And I would try to talk them into coming to Detroit and tell them what a great job there was available in Detroit to run this huge sickle cell program with Wanda Sherney and the newborn screening program and advocacy and collaborations with scientists, Patrick Hines, so many things you could do in Detroit. And finally, I bought my own argument and said, you know what, why don't I do this job? And that's how I wound up taking over the sickle cell program in Detroit.
1: I'm really glad that's how that went, man.
2: Me too. It worked out really well. And I found a lot of the same things that I loved about hemophilia and bleeding disorders were true in sickle cell. You know, you had these long-term relationships with families, you helped them through hard times, and you got to see some successes. It was also clear that there were some differences. Long before I had gone into hemophilia, hemophilia had some really hard times. The clotting factors that were life-saving and prevented a lot of disease complications unfortunately came from pool donors of plasma, and if those donors, if any of them had HIV or hepatitis, it would contaminate the pool, and there was a whole generation of people with hemophilia, unfortunately were exposed to HIV and hepatitis, and I came on just as that terrible time was coming to an end, and there were good therapies for HIV. The clotting factors were safe and hemophilia really started to be in a good place with really good treatments a really strong advocacy community a great group of pharma companies producing the products and really driving innovation and got to be a part of some advances there that were really was rewarding to be a small cog in a giant machine that made people's lives better and as i moved into sickle cell i could see the landscape was different. There were more people with sickle cell. There were more challenges. It's a horrible disease and the treatment options were really limited. But I could also see that opportunity. I could see where there was an opportunity to, again, be a small cog and a big machine that improved lives for people. And it, I think that's one of, one of the most rewarding opportunities you can have. That's turned out to be true. And it's just been wonderful. We had so many great people in Detroit with sickle cell who we We're blessed to take care of. Now, moving into our new roles, I hope to have an opportunity to make changes on a bigger scale and advance therapies that can help people all over the United States and throughout the world. That really gets me up every morning. It's exciting. There's a common
1: thread through your whole story, right, of just aligning yourself with people who are making change that you appreciate as meaningful and aligning with people who are putting in that effort, matching your energy, drawing you to a higher place, allowing you to perform at your best, right? And depending on what you're trying to accomplish, which you've accomplished a lot, not only in hemophilia, but also in sickle cell disease, depending on what you're trying to accomplish, the breadth of what you're trying to accomplish, the people you align with over time also sometimes needs to change. The canvas and the type of paint you use sometimes needs to change depending on what you're trying to create. And I think that's where you are, right? I think you're in a spot where you realize, I want to paint with a broader brush. I want more people to see what I'm working on. And then you've realigned yourself with a group of people who are bought into that, right? Who are bought into wanting to make that change and who have the capacity to implement and create that kind of change globally. I think it's a beautiful thing, man. All the way along
2: I've had people say you should narrowly focus. You can't be a hemophilia doctor and a sickle cell doctor. You can't do basic science and be a clinician. You can't do too many things. Don't get involved in advocacy. Don't get involved in pharma sponsored research. And it never resonated with me. And I have some significant limitations in recognize that and I Think of myself, there used to be these commercials on TV. B A S F. We don't make the things you buy. We make the things you buy better. And so I always found I preferred to be in a place where I thought I could take somebody who's working on something great and help make it a little better. Maybe mentor somebody who's gonna make big changes down the road. And never felt that I had to be the one driving everything or own things and frankly get a little bored getting bogged down in all the details of things sometimes. And that was true I think all the way across my career and you know I know we're going to interview you in a little bit but one day this happy Canadian visiting resident came in and I didn't see it at first but eventually we started working together and you just had such a positive attitude and want to make change and did things in a lot of ways very differently from the way I would do them and we wound up working together really closely and I hope in some ways I've helped to amplify what you're doing but Certainly. I've had tremendous benefits from working with you on things and I think you're alluding to our our move into pharma and I think that was a big transition. It was a hard decision. I really liked my former life as a academic clinician, mentoring people and taking care of patients and moving into a, a corporate setting. I had a big pause about that, but it's been wonderful. I mean, you're working with a bunch of people who are really good at what they do. I've been really pleasantly surprised that the patient is really the focus. We're all on the same team trying to deliver things that are going to make people's lives better. Absolutely. And the resources, be it experts in different areas of research or drug development, financial resources to get programs moving, scientific resources are just on a whole different scale than what I've been used to. And it's Truly, teamwork. I have a hard time explaining my job to people because we have so many people who are experts in different aspects of what we're working on that I work with. It's not clear what function I play in that all the time, but it's great to work in that setting and again, try to be BASF and make the things you buy a little better.
1: I love that. I think, yeah, exactly what you're saying is, first of all, spot on. I also struggle with that same difficulty of what is my job? What do I actually do day to day? It is a very different a way of contributing when you're not, for lack of a better term, boxed in, end up in like a routine, right? Like it's just a routine, just like a grind routine. And while that has its importance, and certainly is necessary, it's been liberating to be able to contribute in ways that are abstract, but feel very important nonetheless. It still feels like progress, and it feels like still meaningful progress. And I think that, you know, I shared a lot of that hesitancy that you were talking about, of is this the right thing to do? And I think now looking at it 18 months almost out unequivocally, it it was the right thing to do. Certainly for me, that decision was made.
2: I love being a doctor. I love walking into a room and talking to a family and having them trust me with the challenges that they're facing and working with them to try to troubleshoot it and bring medical knowledge and knowledge about disease, what's available to help to the table. And especially when that's successful, it's wonderful. I'm a nerdy hematologist and I still love looking at blood smears and going back to clinic a couple of days a month I really enjoy but this new role I feel like gives you an opportunity to bring changes on a bigger scale that can help more people and you're right it's not there is no daily grind it's a new thing every day I feel like I'm always learning something And I really love where we landed, because I think nothing wrong with bigger companies. But if we were in a bigger company, we would probably get siloed into a specific role. But I feel like where we are, we get to bring the patient voice. We get to bring knowledge of sickle cell disease. We get to be involved in advocacy. We get to be involved in education, basic science. True. Yeah. And our day job, which is to run clinical trials. It's been a great move. And I think you instigated it. And I appreciate that. Oops, sorry. (laughs) I am an instigator. That is part of the problem. I've heard that before.
1: (laughs) No, man, I'm so happy with the way that your story is moving forward. I'm so happy to have a front row seat to it, to watch it happen, and to see the way that you're influencing change in sickle cell disease up front. I don't think there's anybody else that gets that opportunity as closely as I do. And it's just brilliant to watch it happen. I'm glad to be along for the ride, man.
2: I think you're driving, but <laughs> no, thank you. It's been a great, I think we probably met about seven, eight, nine years ago. And even starting cheat codes a couple of years ago, it was very different from what we were doing. It was a little bit of an out there idea, but I've been happy with how it's taken off. I run into people at meetings and they say, I learned all about sickle cell from listening to cheat codes. And we've had so many great guests on that I've learned from, and it's been really a gem to be able to be a part of cheat codes and get to know the sickle cell community better. And I think I get the same vantage point watching you transition through all of this and see all of the things that you accomplish and the way you interact with people and get people excited about sickle cell. And I'm very excited to start the second part of of our
0: episode and interview you. Agios is a biopharmaceutical company that's fueled by connections with patient communities, healthcare professionals, patients, and each other. Building on these connections and the company's unmatched leadership in the field of cellular metabolism, Agios is pioneering therapies of genetically defined diseases, a broad group of rare and more common diseases that are typically severe and life-threatening. Near-term, Agios is focusing on hemolytic and acquired anemias, including sickle cell disease, pyruvate kinase, or PK deficiency, and thalassemia. To learn more, visit agios.com. That's A-G-I-O-S dot com. Let's
2: get on to the second part. Let's hear about Dr. Z. I grew up in Detroit, but you are uh, a few years younger than me, but just across the river, just south of Detroit. Tell me about childhood of Dr. Z and how you wound up where you are.
1: Yeah, it's, I think it was really cool growing up in Canada. Yes, Windsor is like one mile south of Detroit, but really it it is a different country. And my parents had been there for, my parents had been there for two, three decades prior to me showing up. Really not, that's not true. Two, three decades, no. But a decade and a half. And my dad was this very interesting fella. I mean, he was a, essentially a race relations officer, ombudsman in the anti-racism secretariat before being anti-racist, for it was a thing. It was like the 80s. And I grew up in that environment of being around. I suspect it rubbed off a little bit. I think so, man. And I didn't even know it, right? Until it's like those Russian spies that get unlocked with like words, trigger words. Uh, That's how it felt. But I grew up in this environment of lots of immigrants, advocacy for people who were like being deported and going to racism, anti-racism marches, you know, this kind
2: of stuff. It's like the Manchurian candidate, but good
1: yeah so growing up in that environment was i think really neat and an environment of really pushing academic achievement right very typical as you expect from asian families that was definitely something that that was pushed both my sisters pursued phds so did my dad so i was the least educated out of the family and then went the route of the md pretty quickly realized man that i wanted to spend my time with pediatrics be around children and I feel like that fit my personality better. Adults are pretty frankly terrible in general. Like they're all like grumpy and upset with life. I can say that because I am an adult and that's my disposition most days. But kids are wonderful, right? And like me and you got to see this up front, where a two-year-old with leukemia or sickle cell disease is actually just a two-year-old. Their diagnosis is like not registering for them as anything of importance. And that's a really interesting way to live your life, but I really do think it helps outcomes. And that became apparent to me early on as a medical student, I think. Like you alluded to, I had the opportunity to come and see pediatric hematology, oncology, really up close when I came to Detroit. Um, but it really started, man, with a guy called Chuck Main, uh, Dr. Main at a little community hospital called Beaumont here in Metro Detroit. And I think you, you've also crossed
2: for me too, yeah, yeah. No, I when I was a third year medical student, I did a rotation there, and it was such a wonderful way to see pediatric hematology. Dr. Maine is is fantastic doctor, but just like a great teddy bear of a man, and such a sweet guy, and teaches you a lot about hematology, but about life. And the whole group was great, Doctor Jamil and Emmanuela.
1: And- yeah. Yeah, so really as my familiarity with that group increased, so did my desire to join them, truly. And I thought, well, this is where I want to be. I want to be at this type of a setting, community hospital, see a little bit of everything, really touch the community in a really deep way. But man, once I came to Detroit and once that, I think the trigger word for me that unlocked sort of my conditioning growing up, was sickle cell because I didn't see it at Beaumont. It required me to come to Detroit and see it. And once I did, and once I met those families, once I met the doctors who were taking care of our Dr. Sar- same, similar people, right? Dr. Sarnaik and Dr. Wanda Witten-Sherney, yourself, it becomes just so much bigger than a nine to five, so much bigger than a job. It just becomes really consumed me truly. And I was happy about it, but, but, as we worked on a lot of cool things together, you know, and the way that me and you process ideas is pretty interesting, right? It's very dynamic. And we just talk things through haphazardly and come up with ideas. As I was walking through this early research career in sickle cell, it came with a lot of no's. Yeah,
2: I I think academic medicine is a tough space, right? Like, it's a lot of rejection. Nine out of 10 grants get triaged, your papers get critiqued, And that's never fun for anybody. But just taking a step back, I had a ringside seat at this. And I remember after you came for that rotation as a resident, you came back as a fellow, I didn't work with you very much early on. And everybody was telling me how great you were. And I was like, this guy is always happy and kind of silly. But I saw this spark take hold and create this fire for sickle cell. I think it was probably in your first year of fellowship, I could see you start heading in that direction. And then with the force, you moved into sickle cell. You started, you knew every advocate you were on everybody's social media page and just learning everything you could about sickle cell in a very different way than I would, I think I would be on PubMed and with a textbook and you are, I'm going to learn from patients they are the experts on this. And I'm going to really get involved in this community. And I loved it. I'm here for it. It's been wonderful to watch and it. In some ways brought me into that, which was to me too, and it was...
1: i for sure I appreciate so much how not in your comfort zone a lot of these things that I forced you to do are right let's bullshit for an hour on a podcast, and let's see what happens right and like we we would do that anyway, all I introduced was the webcam and the microphone, right, and I think that you're right, the approach was very non-academic. And honestly, a lot of that came from, like you said, in academia, there's a lot of no. And it was grant submission after grant submission and application after application. No. And I was like, you know what? Forget it. Academia is not going to work for me. Let me approach this differently, right? Let's go to the patients. Let's learn from the patients. And let's do social media like Twitter, Instagram. Let me... See if I can get the fire to spread that way.
2: I think everybody in that stage feels that way. Like it's all, no, I can't do this. I'm not successful. But from the outside, I think you have no idea how successful you were. You were getting Big chunks of research funding and getting papers published and having plenary talks at giant meetings. And that is not the usual. So it may have felt like not having success, but that's not the case. No,
1: I appreciate that. But we have, all of us have that graveyard of ideas, right? We have zinc. And I remember we talked about cupping therapy and we talked about, there were all sorts of things that like, when I go into my Dropbox of grant applications and like Ash CRTIs and this, that, and the other, I have 20 things there, right? Oh, my graveyard has 500. I know, I gave up a lot quicker. But no, truly, I think that when I think about the thing that really fired me up, it was this immense desire to become really intimately familiar with the patient community and the academic community. And that really started driving me. If I can create a network of allies in this community that are immensely important in how they are influencing the way we think about sickle cell disease. The power of that Rolodex is huge. And I think I I realized that really quickly with a lot of your guidance in like seeing how closely connected the hemostasis coag community was and seeing how you guys worked together. There was like a real desire in me to create that type of fraternity in sickle cell for myself, selfishly. But I think what's come from that is this really interesting sort of slumdog millionaire like situation where like problems arise and it's like, oh, you know what? I ran into this person at this point, at some point in my life and I think that person could be helpful right now. Whether it's a patient advocate Uh, or or whether it's like a research question or a sickle cell question, right? Like it's, I don't know, even in clinic, you'd see it. I've had a leg ulcer question. Let me call Katerina. I've got this question about patient health navigators and a grant we want to put in. Oh, you know what? Wally talked to us about this at one point. And like those types of connections have really amplified our ability to influence the way things are going. So that's been honestly a lot of fun for me.
2: Yeah, I see it. And I see you embrace it. And I think, Not everybody gets that out of those interactions, right? So I think you come to everything and really wanna bring people in and you always have this positive attitude and it's infectious and people wanna be a part of it. And so I think you do build these relationships and I think that community was building anyway, but I think you've been a catalyst and it's wonderful to see, to go to meetings now and see the sickle cell community continue to grow add people. It's a dynamic place. And
1: I think you've been a part of that. Got to feel a little rewarding. It's been fun, man. And I think that's one of the things that I love about this current job is like my favorite part about my old job is a little bit different from you. I think you really liked the problem solving. Let me figure out what's happening with this patient and like the management. And that that part was cool for me, right? It was fine. But the best part about my entire day to day was the first 10 minutes of the patient encounter. It was like, how's life, man? How are things going? What's new? What's exciting? And a little bit of, let me tell you what's exciting for me right now in sickle cell. Let's talk about those things. That was the fun part for me. That's, I would take out the iPad and draw diagrams. And that part was like communicating the science it was always the fun part for me. And like interacting with these colleagues in sickle cell who were just these big names, these like celebrities, right? And hearing how they thought through things and then being able to distill that down and give it back to the patients was so much fun for me. And that's the approach that I've taken in this new role of wanting to do that exact same thing. I am not a details guy by any stretch of the imagination, you know that well, but to be able to take these scientific concepts and deliver them in a way that's accessible and become something that patients can touch is like the most meaningful part of my job, even still.
2: That's a great part about the new role. I feel like in the old role, you worked in little teams or a lot of times solo, and you had to be the details guy and the big picture guy and the stats guy and the operations person. And in the new role can float on this big picture and inspiration and you have a lot of teammates who can bring other pieces in and really make it better. Back to what you liked about interacting with patients. Patients really liked me. I had a a group of patients who would say, you know, I only want to see you. I don't want to see anybody else. They would be upset when I was out of town. And when a new guy comes in, they would always be like, oh, you're pawning me off on the new guy. And then you would go in the room. and. The next time they'd be like we love you dr c but if you want us to see dr z again and i could see a lot of patients disappearing off my schedule which was in in some (laughs) ways needed and i was happy to see it and know the patients were getting good care but it was a definite change and you could tell your approach really resonated with people and i should say again you know it was pretty different from mine i think but we both came from the same place of trying to get to the solution in different ways completely
1: That's true Yeah, you would be like, all right, this is what we need to do. And I'd be like, let's burn everything down. You'd be like, listen, man, if you burn everything down, we're going to burn with it. No, you're right. It was a lot of fun, man. I had a great time. Obviously, the transition out of that role into the current was not possible without knowing that we would be making that transition together. For me too. Yeah. So the activation energy of that reaction definitely reduced once I knew that we would be going at the same time to the same place to work on the same problem. That was huge for me. So the mentorship and the friendship is definitely a big formative piece of the story that I'm trying to build. So it's very much appreciated.
2: Works both ways. Speaking of that, I think our first mentors and huge influences are our families. And I've had a chance to meet a few 80s now. And you mentioned your dad was working on in, in government on anti-racism, but also he was a poet. And uh I see that sometimes in, in Dr. Z. There's a little bit of poetry in the way you do things. I think we were in a meeting not too long ago and someone said, I think Blaze called you smooth. And I think you do have a way of, of capturing things in poetry and then your oldest sister works in the sociology space. And I see that sometimes too, the way you approach things. And then I finally had the pleasure of meeting your mom, who is just such a nice lady, and I think probably is the grounding force behind Dr. Z. So tell me a little bit about how that family influenced you.
1: Yeah, I think I was the youngest, right? And I was the youngest by a lot. By a lot. Yeah, so 12, 13 years from my sisters. One of the things that I hear a lot from people is like, hey man, you've got this like good ability to, again, just not to sound arrogant, but like you've got this ability to kind of read the room. You know, my living room was like three PhDs between my sisters and my dad who were very opinionated about a lot of things. And like, you needed to know when to approach them and how to approach them and what you needed to say to get what you, where you needed to go so i feel like i've always needed to be a salesman just around the house okay this is what i need to get to and you know what i need to say and i may not believe what i need to say but i'm going to say it anyways cuz i know what i need to do so certainly i think being around that group of people has been influential in just the way i approach problems yeah and you're right i think certainly a lot of the niceness that, that comes from my mom and also canada shout out to canada but yeah definitely family has been a huge part of it and and even still right the wife the kids—they share me with a lot of people, and I think I, I appreciate their ability to, to let go and allow for that to happen. So that's also been huge for me, as it has been for you,
2: right? Oh, for sure. Linda and I have five kids, and it's the most wonderful thing. I was reading somewhere about happiness, and they said you know you have to have enjoyment, and we get some enjoyment. We get out and have fun sometimes, and you have to have achievement, and I I think a lot of things around work can feel that way sometimes. You, make a contribution that you feel like I had something to do with that and it's an achievement yeah but I think you know more than anything you need meaning and having kids I think gives you that meaning you see how important and the next generation is and I think you also see how blessed you are and relate to people going through challenges in a different way you see your kids and people
1: or I couldn't do anything without my family this has been a fun chance for us to catch up and think about the trail that we've been on to date. I'm excited to see where it ends up, man. I'm happy that our paths crossed, and I'm happy that we're able to work on this problem together um, in different ways. There's this misattributed quote of Henry Ford, something he never said, but I think about it often. He is quoted to have said, if I had asked people what they want, they would have told me faster horses. And I think that's a good ethos to live by, is like, you don't have to follow the same path that everybody else is on it's okay to step off of the path that people expect you to be on and to do something outside the box and do things differently and i think we have and we are and i appreciate that so much
2: and we'll, we'll get back to good guests again in
1: the next cheat codes episode <laughs> are you saying we're not good guests <laughs> you are maybe but uh... <laughs> now you're right we definitely have a lot planned we're going to be very busy coming around the american society of hematology there's a lot of cool cheat codes ideas that we're going to be able to share with you guys i think believe has a lot of really exciting things coming up across the entire spectrum so stay tuned for that dr c man always a pleasure to catch up with you i uh i hope that the warriors enjoyed this episode and we look forward to catching up with you guys real soon once again thanks dr z this was fun make sure you follow me at dr z sickle cell and me at imagineer Keep living well with Sickle Cell. We'll catch you next time. Peace, warriors.